Amen. All right, well, we're there in Leviticus chapter number 27, and I'm excited to be finishing the book of Leviticus tonight, and I'm sure you are too. It's been 27 weeks uh, that we've been in the book of Leviticus. You know, our, our church is seven years old, and in the last seven years, we have preached verse by verse, chapter by chapter, uh, not skipping anything uh, through the books of Genesis and Exodus and Leviticus and Joshua and Judges and 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel and Isaiah and Hosea and Matthew and John and Acts and Romans and James and Jude. Uh, so we're doing pretty good for seven years, I think. And uh, we're going to, our goal is to do the whole book the whole Bible. And then when we're done, we're probably going to do it again. But we're not going to start with Leviticus, probably. Uh, not Leviticus. Leviticus 27, look at verse 1. The Bible says this, And the Lord uh, spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel, and say unto them, When a man shall make a singular vow, the persons shall be for the Lord by thy estimation. Here in this, in the second uh, verse of this chapter, we find the theme of the chapter, and the theme is basically this. It is in reference to vows. Notice how it says, when a man shall make a singular vow. And then he says this at the end of the verse, he says, for the Lord by thy estimation. Those are the two themes we see in this chapter. We see about how Seriously, God takes it when we make vows to Him, when we make a vow and when we commit something to Him. And then we also talk a lot in this chapter about estimations, about values of different things. And we start off here with the idea of the person. Notice what he says, when a man shall make a singular vow, the persons shall be for the Lord by thy estimation. So as we go through this chapter... What we're going to see is what God expects in regards to consecration of different things. And we start off with the consecration of uh, the persons. When someone would make a vow unto the Lord and they would vow either themselves or they would vow somebody else and offer them up uh, to the Lord. Now before we go any further, keep your place there. That's obviously our text for tonight. But go to 1 Samuel chapter number 1. Let me give you one example of this. And because uh, what, one, of the, one of the things about this chapter that I want you to understand is that God in Leviticus chapter number 27 is actually giving regulations in regards to people who make vows and do not keep them. When they offer a sacrifice unto God and then they change their mind or they take away from it. And you might ask yourself, well, why would anybody ever do that? Why would you make a vow to God and not keep it? Or make a vow to God and, and not stick with it? But I want you to notice in 1 Samuel chapter number 1, the reason for that is because most of the vows that we make to God are often often done when we are in an emotional state. You will find in Scripture that oftentimes people are making vows to God when they are emotionally hyped up, when they are emotionally out of control. And when we find ourselves in those situations, we often make vows and say things and make promises to God. And, and, and then God takes us up on that vow. And God, uh, you know, uh, meets the need or God completes His end. And then we back off when the emotion has subsided, when the danger is gone, or when, when the situation has changed. Here in 1 Samuel chapter number 1, we find one example of that in the story of Hannah. Now, Hannah made a vow and kept it. 
So she did a great job. But I want you to notice that her vow was connected to her emotions. First uh, Samuel 1, look at verse 11. The Bible says this about Hannah. First Samuel chapter 1, verse 11. And she vowed a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if thou wilt indeed look on the affliction, notice the, the emotion there, on the affliction of thine handmaid, and remember me, and not forget thine handmaid, but will give unto thine handmaid a man-child, then I will give him unto the Lord all the days of his life, and there shall no razor come upon his head. So here we have Hannah who is barren, who couldn't have children, and she's pleading with God and saying, God, if you give me a child, I'll return him back to you. I'll give him back to you. And she literally did take Samuel back to the temple and gave him to Eli the high priest and returned him back. But we see here a vow that's made out of emotion. Another example of this, and you don't have to turn there, you can go back to Leviticus, but you know the famous story of Jephthah, the judge, who finds himself getting ready to go into a battle. The odds don't look well for him. And he's saying, Lord, if you give me the victory, I will sacrifice the first thing that comes out of my house. And of course, the Lord does give him the victory. And what's the first thing that comes out of his house, his daughter. And he ends up having to sacrifice her. And, and that's a whole other story, and we won't go into those details. But I want you to notice that th those are kind of radical stories, which is why they, they come out in Scripture and we remember them. But here in Leviticus 27, God is saying, if you, if you find yourself in that emotional state where you're, 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 you know, you're in an emergency room, and your child is sick and you say, Lord, if you, if you let him live, I'll, I'll return him back to you. Or, Lord, if you get me out of this jam, I'll, 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 give, you know, I'll give you my life. You know, and We don't like those terms when it comes to salvation, of course. Salvation is not giving your life to God. Salvation is the fact that the Lord Jesus Christ gave His life for you. But you know, as Christians, once you're saved, you ought to give your life to God. The Bible says, Christ who is our life. And we should give ourselves. And we often find ourselves saying that. If you get me out of this jam, Lord, I'll serve you. If you get me out of this jam, I'll get back to church. If you fix this for me, I'll make things right. But here's what happens is usually people say, Lord, if you just work this out, I promise I'll be in church every Sunday. I'll, I'll, I'll start giving. I'll start doing this. Or I'll start having Bible time. I'll quit that sin. I'll quit this sin. And we make those emotional uh, 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 you know, commitments to God, but we often have no really intention of ever keeping them. But in the Levitical law, God would say, no, if you commit your life, if you say, I'm going to give my child to you, Hannah, I'm going to give the sacrifice that comes out of you, uh, out of my house, I'm going to give you my life, Lord, help me in this situation, then he actually expected you to do something with it. Notice, notice what he says, look at Leviticus 27 and verse 3, the Bible says this, in thy estimation shall be of the male, so he starts going through and he says, look, if you make a vow to God, he says, there's an estimation there. There's a value. He says, And the estimation shall be of the male from 20 years old, even unto 60 years old. Even thy estimation shall be 50 shekels of silver after the shekels of the sanctuary. So he tells us here, if you're a male between the ages of 20 and 60 years old, you you can't see you can't go to church and get emotional and say I'm giving my life to God. See when they would do that in the Old Testament, then God would say, okay, well now I'm expecting something from you. What are you? Twenty years old? You're twenty five years old? You're between twenty and sixty years old? You're a male? 
50 shekels. That's what it costs. And they would get these sacrifices because, see, it wasn't enough to just cheaply say, I'm giving my life to God. I'm offering myself to the Lord. No, they had to actually back it up financially. And God expected me to tell them, here's the cost. You want to you uh, you know, offer yourself uh, to me? He, he doesn't take, uh, you know... Uh, human sacrifices in, in, in the sense that he would have them be put to death. Uh, you know, Romans talks about giving ourselves as a living sacrifice, but here they would have to actually make a financial, a financial contribution. Notice verse 4, and if it be a, fe a female, so female between 20 years old and 60 year old, then thy estimation shall be 30 shekels. So you have a, a male between 20 and 60, 50 shekels. You have a female between 20 and 60, 30 shekels. Notice verse 5, and if it be from 5 years old even unto 20 years old, then thy estimation shall be of the male 20 shekels, and for the female, 10 shekels. So, if you have a male, you got a, a 20 to 60 male, 50 shekels. 20 to 60 female, 30 shekels. 5 years old to 20 years old, male uh, was uh, 20 shekels. 5 year old to 20 year old female, uh, 30 shekels. Now let me just make a couple of uh, comments here because people often look at these verses and they're like, I can't believe that God would, you know, 50 shekels on a male and 30 shekels on a female and God is, you know, such a male chauvinist and blah, blah, blah. But here's the thing. The value is based on what someone would earn in an agricultural society. So the value goes highest up to a male 20 and 60 years old because you're going to get the most out of them working on a farm. That's where they're getting the value uh, set from. So you got 50 shekels for a 20 to 60 year old and 30 shekels for a female 20 to 60 years old. And here's the thing. People say like, oh God is such a male chauvinist. Well look, before you start getting mad at God, you know, why don't you get mad at the whole American society because isn't it just a known fact in America that men make more money than women? And people will be like, well, that's the worst thing in the world. And you know, you know what I think is, I think women should make nothing. I think they should be keepers at home, like the Bible says. I think they should be at, you know, with their families and raising their children. But people act like, oh, that's so terrible. But look, we live in, in, in a, a worldly, you know, liberal society. And even in our homo-loving, transgender-accepting society, they still pay men more than women. So before you get mad at God and say, well, I can't believe that God would value men more than women. Look, look, I, I hate to break it to you, but do you, do you understand that men have more upper body strength than women? They're going to work harder on a farm. That's the whole point. That's what, he, that's what he's saying. So it's not this thing about one's worth more. Look, we were all made in the image of God. Right? If, you put, if, if you killed a woman, you know what you got? The death penalty. Because there's value to life. But here, he, the, the values are set on your worth. And by the way, we, we, we have that here today. I mean, we live in that society. Some of you make a certain amount an hour, and there's others of you that make less an hour. Why? You know, you get mad and you're like, what's well, the government, it's the culture, it's the state. No, it's because that's what you're worth. Because if you could get paid more, you would get paid more. If you had the degree, if you had the education, if you had the skill, if you had the ability, if you had those things, you'd get paid more. 
If you're getting paid minimum wage tonight, there's, I'm not mad at you for getting paid minimum wage. There's nothing wrong with working a job where you're getting minimum wage. That's good, honest work. But if you're getting paid minimum wage, there's a reason for that because you're obviously lacking skills or something where you could get paid more. Because if you could get paid more, guess what? You would get paid more. And that's, you know, that's what this uh, chapter is all about. Not all about, but... This section, people get all upset and say like, well, God is not fair and God's not this. But you know what? Our society is just like it. They're not going to pay you any more than you're worth. They're not going to pay you any more than, than the production they can get out of you. So we've got these males. And let me say one more thing. It's interesting in the Bible how you're not considered an adult until you're 20 years old. You weren't allowed to go out to battle until you were 20 years old. You weren't numbered with the men until you were 20 years old. My wife and I were recently watching a documentary, and the documentary was stating the fact that the human brain, you know, most of the brain is made up of gray matter, but the, there's white matter in the brain also that actually connects. So you've got the different parts of the brain. The white matter actually connects things together, which you can have the intelligence, but if you can't make the connections, there's nothing, you know, there's nothing, uh, there, you can't work it all out. And what's interesting that they found about the white matter in the brain is that it doesn't finish developing until you're 20 years old. So it's kind of interesting that God doesn't acknowledge someone as an adult until they're 20 years old uh, because their brain's not done developing. That's my evolution uh, lesson for tonight. Look at verse 5. Well, 5 years old to 20 years old, you got 20 shekels for the male, uh, 10 shekels for the female. Look at verse 6. And if it be from a month old, even unto 5 years old. So you got a month, a, a one-month-old to a five-year-old. Then the estimation shall be of the male five shekels of silver, and for the female the estimation shall be three shekels of silver. And of course, when it comes to the children, you're talking about what you could get production out of them in the future. Uh, let's see, verse number seven. And if it be from sixty years old and above. So now we're going to retired. Uh, if it be a male, then my estimation shall be 15 shekels, and for the female, uh, 10 shekels. Now notice verse 8. And if he be, be poor, and if he be poor, then thy estimation. So the person, male, female, no matter what age, they're poor and they can't pay that. Then he shall present himself before the priest, and the priest shall value him according to his ability. Oh, you're so messed up. No, that's what they do. That's what your job... Your, your, look, your boss looks at you and figures out, according to your ability, here's what you're worth. Here's what I'm going to pay you. You know, and if you, if you think you should get paid more, then maybe you need to develop better skills or become a better worker or go start your own business or whatever. We live in, you know, we, we still live in a country where you can make money and, and, and do uh, great things in that way. But notice what it says. But if you be poor, then by estimation, then he shall present himself before the priest and the priest shall value him according to his ability that uh, vowed uh, shall the priest value him. So the idea is this, if you couldn't afford that, then you'd go to the priest and say, I can't afford that. And they would look at you and say, well, what can you afford? And they work with you. And here's the point, that God wanted everyone to be able to offer themselves unto the Lord and to say, hey, I want to give myself to God. But here's what I want you to understand. When these people said, I'm giving my life to God. It was different than when you and I say it in the New Testament local church. Because you know what you and I mean in the local New Testament church when we say, I'm giving my life to God? You know what most of us mean? Absolutely nothing. 
That's exactly what we mean. We're just in this emotional, get me out of this emergency room, get my wife to come back, get my job, you know, uh, get me a better job. If you would do this, if you would do that, you know, I'll give my life to you. But you know what I've noticed as a pastor over the last seven years is that people come through these doors when their marriage is falling apart, when they lost their job, when their car doesn't work, when they don't have any money. But as soon as they start, things start turning around for them, you know what they do? They forget God. And those vows just go out the window and all that. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to be their pastor Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night. It meant nothing. But you know what God thinks of it? God actually wanted these people, when they made a vow and said, I'm giving my life to you, he'd be like, all right, 50, 50 shekels. And he said, what can we learn from that? Here's what we can learn from that. When you give your life to God, so-called, it should cost you something. Amen. It should actually hurt you somewhat. And what is it? You say, Pastor, what are you doing? A fundraiser tonight? I'm not, I mean, you want to give me 50 shekels, we'll take it. I don't really know what 50 shekels are. But here's what I'm saying, though. It should hurt you. You know, when you commit your quote-unquote life to God, why don't you actually commit something that's going to hurt you? You're going to say, I'm going to be there every week, and I'm going to mean it, or I'm going to be there out soul winning, and I'm going to mean it. See, we see here that God is teaching that if you, if you give a vow to Him, it should cost you something. It should hurt you. It should actually be where you're giving them something. Not where you're just, you know, in a frenzy, in an emotional state, or you're, you know, hyper-spiritual. That was such a great servant, Pastor. I'm giving my life to Jesus. And it's like, we haven't seen you in church in three weeks. Ah, uh, yeah. You mean we make these vows to God and they mean nothing, and God wants them to actually mean something. So we see the value or the consecration, first of all, of a person. But secondly, in this chapter, we see the consecration of animals. Notice verse 9. And if it be a beast, okay, because with a person, he doesn't actually expect you to go live in the temple like Samuel did. Okay, and Samuel ended up becoming a high priest and all those things. We get that. For most people, that wasn't the case. They, they gave their lives to God. They, God, Lord, if you, you know, make sure my kid comes out of this accident, okay, I'm going to give him back to you. Then they had to actually go and, and pay the money and say, here's the representation of that. Here's the value of that life. Here's how I'm giving it back to the Lord. But then with the consecration of animals, it's a little different. Notice verse 9. And if it be a beast... Whereof men bring an offering unto the Lord. So they're bringing a beast to the Lord. They're bringing an animal to the Lord to offer it as an offering. All that any man giveth of such unto the Lord shall be holy. Now he begins to talk about this. He says, He shall not alter it, nor change it. He said, well, what, what is God talking about there? Here's what he's talking about. Where someone, again, usually in an emotional state, and an emotional frenzy, they're feeling really spiritual, they're feeling really guilty, and they're not saying, Lord, if you get my baby out of the you know, ER, I'm going to give him to you, and we're going to start going to church every week. They're not saying that. But now they're saying, Lord, I'm going to give you this animal, and I'm going to give you this possession, and I'm going to give you this. But you know what? People will often commit things to God, and then decide to take it back. And then decide to change their mind. Notice what God says about that, verse 10. He shall not alter it, nor change it. He says, you don't get to change your mind. He says, a good for a bad, or a bad for a good, and if he shall at all change beast for beast, then it, then it and the exchange thereof shall be holy. Now, understand what he's saying here, okay? Let's, let's define some words. When he says good and bad, 
in our King James Bible. Usually when we think of the word good and bad, we think of moral immoral. You know, holy and sinful. In our King James Bible, good and bad is simply talking about value. That's what this whole chapter is about. The estimation. The value of something. Not that it's immoral, just if it has a good value, if it has a bad value. Just real quickly, go to 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. Let me, let me make this connection to another part of Scripture. But you know, the Bible says that we have to compare spiritual things with spiritual. And we need to allow the Bible to be its own, defi- uh, its own dictionary. And it's very clear from Leviticus 27, if you haven't seen it already, we'll see it more as we go back to it, that good and bad is just talking about value. Is it worthless? Is it worth something? Not sin or, or not sin, not moral or immoral. What's interesting about that is in 2 Corinthians chapter number 5 and in verse number 10, the Bible says this, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay, now, this is the only judgment that believers will uh, face God at, or the Lord Jesus Christ at. There are two judgments. The judgment seat of Christ, the great white throne. We will never stand at the great white throne. If you're saved, if your name's in the Lamb's Book of Life, you will not be judged at the great white throne. Only unbelievers will be judged there. They will be judged for their works, and they will be cast into hell, because there is none righteous, no, not one. Because there's none that doeth good, because there's no one, because we all come short of the glory of God. They will be judged for their works, and they will be found wanting. And they will die and go, and they will be cast into the lake of fire. The, the judgment seat of Christ is the judgment where believers will stand. You will stand at the judgment seat of Christ. I will stand one day at the judgment seat of Christ. Notice how we will be judged. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that he hath done, whether it be, notice these words, good or bad. Now, a lot of times people will preach this and say, see, you're going to stand at the judgment seat of Christ and you're going to have to give an account for your sins. Everything you did, whether it was good or whether it was bad. But there's a problem with that. The problem with that is that the Bible teaches that when you got saved, God separated you from your sins as far as the east is from the west. He says He forgot your sins. He says He will never remember your sins. He says He will never bring them up to you again. He he says they've been washed. In fact, they've been redeemed. They've been paid for. They were put on the Lord Jesus Christ. He took them down to hell. They've been paid for. They're done. So does it really make sense that after all of that, then we're going to stand before Jesus and He's going to say, remember when you were six years old and you stole that Kit Kat bar? Remember when you did this? And remember when you did that? See, the judgment seat of Christ is not to judge us for our sins because if you're saved, you'll never be judged for your sins. The judgment for your sins have been, has been accomplished through the Lord Jesus Christ. So what will you be judged for here? You will be judged for your works, yes, but not whether they were sinful or holy. The good and bad there is talking about the value. You're going to be judged whether the works and the things you did on this earth, whether they were wood, hay, and stubble, or whether they were, uh, you know, gold and silver and precious stones. I mean, what's more valuable, gold or wood? What's more valuable, diamonds or hay? Now, hay is not sinful. Wood's not sinful. But it's not valuable. And that's why we need to make sure we live our lives with an eternal purpose. We need to make sure we live our lives doing things and being involved in things that actually matter. Look, if you give your whole life to the NFL, 
the NFL. You know, it's I just I, I love the 49ers and I love the Raiders and I love all these people. I'm just going every Sunday I'm gonna not go to church. I'm gonna watch them and worship them and love. And you say, oh, the NFL is not sinful. <laughs> yeah, right. With all their little cheerleaders and all their little, you know, beer ads. Right. And tell me it's not sinful. But even if it wasn't, even if it wasn't, you know what it is? It's a big waste of time. Amen. It's worthless. And you're going to get to heaven one day, and God's going to take all your little sports and throw them in the fire and be like, oh, it turns out it was wood, hay, and stubble. Right. And you know what fire does to it? It burns it up. Because you will be judged for the things that were done in your body, whether they were good, valuable, or bad. And we use those terms even today. Go back to Leviticus. When you say, like, the milk went bad. Okay, it's not that the milk got backslidden. It's that the milk <laughs> is no longer valuable, right? It's just no, you can't use it anymore. Leviticus 27. Look at verse number... Um, we'll go, go back to... Look at verse 10. And he shall not alter it, nor change it. He says, look... You don't get to change your mind. Once you've made a vow to God, once you said, I'm going to give you that beast, I'm going to give you that animal, I'm going to give it, he shall not alter it nor change it, a good for a bad. Because here's what happens is, is you, you, get, you say, I'm going to give God that ox. And then you're like, man, that ox, actually, you know, that ox is a pretty nice ox. I, I think I'm going to give God this other ox, you know, that's, that's blind and maimed. Uh, and, and you want to exchange the good for the bad, the one that's more valuable for the one that's less valuable, or a bad for a good. It says, and if he shall at all change beast for beast, notice the punishment, then it and the exchange thereof shall be holy. Here's what God says. If you commit to God a certain animal, and then you realize like, whoa, that animal's really actually useful. I get a lot of work out of that animal. I'm going to give him this other animal. It's not very good. God says the punishment for that is then you have to give up both. Yeah. You know, it'd be like today, I heard a preacher say this once, and it'd be like today if you, if, if you walked by, you know, our mother baby room, and you're like, man, you know, the Lord just lays it on your heart. Like, I want to, I want you know, donate. And we've actually had people do this, and we're thankful for it, and praise the Lord for it, um, where people will donate, like, screens to put in our mother baby rooms. You know, we've had very generous people buy the screens that are in the mother baby rooms and the daddy baby rooms, and, I, and I, we're thankful for that, and I'm sure the moms are very thankful for that, you know. Because if it was up to me, they'd be watching on a screen that was, like, this size, <laughs> right? But we have generous people that give us screens, the screens in the foyer, the screens in the, in the break room, those big screens have all been donated. But it would be like if someone, you know, like if we were in need of something like that, and the Lord lays it on your heart to like go, I'm going to go purchase a screen for the church, I'm going to donate it. You go to the store, you find it, you know, it's kind of pricey, but you think that the Lord is leading me, the Lord is blessing me. You buy that screen, and, and you have every purpose and intention, you know, to donate it, or that camera, or that whatever equipment it is. You get that screen home, and then, and, but then all of a sudden you start looking at the screen you've got. Which you probably shouldn't have. You start looking at that old TV you've got, and you're like, "Wait a minute!" And then you're like, "You're like, I I'm going to give this one to God, but I'm just going to set it here, just to see what it looks like. I just want to see what it looks like, right?" And then you put it up on your in your living room, and I'm, I'm just going to cook up the. I just want to make sure it works, right? And then all of a sudden, you're lugging that big old box to church, right? That's not. God says that's wrong. If you committed to give one thing, 
Don't later change your mind and say, oh, I don't know, that was actually more than I thought or that was more expensive than I thought. That was, you know, not what I was thinking. God says, don't do that. He says, in fact, the punishment for that is now you got to give them both up. And you should probably just give them both up anyway. But, you know, now you got to give up the big ugly one and the nice one that you bought. That's the idea. When you say, I'm going to give God something, you can't exchange it. You can't decide later on, oh, well, that one's actually more valuable than this one. And that's when it comes to a clean beast, because the clean beasts were all supposed to be sacrificed to God anyway. Look at verse 11. Then he talks about an unclean beast. That would be more like the TV. And if it be any unclean beast of which they do not offer... Right, So saying the animals that the priests don't actually sacrifice, a sacrifice unto the Lord, then he shall present the beast before the priest, and the priest shall value it. So they'll decide you know, what the value of it is, whether it be good or bad. So again, it's not that this beast is sinful, just the value. Is it, does it have good value, bad value? As thou valuest it, who art the priest, so shall it be, verse 13. But if he will at all redeem it, now notice what it says. The clean animal you could not redeem. When you decided to give God an animal that, that was a clean animal that you would sacrifice, that's what we've been studying in Leviticus, right? The first seven chapters about all the animal sacrifices. You could not exchange it. Once you told God you were giving that one up, you give it. And if you try to, you know, uh, uh, bait and switch God on it, then He says, you're giving up both now. But when it came to these unclean animals, God would say, you want to, you, you know, I, I know, I know when you were in the emergency room, I know when you were in the unemployment line, I know when you were, you know, in the in divorce court, you were making all these vows and saying, if you bring my sweetie back home, I'll give you that prize ox I've got, and now she's back home, and now you're like, mm, I don't know if I want to give that ox to God. God says, okay, well, here's the deal, verse 12, and the priest shall value it, whether it be good or bad, as thou valuest it. Who art the priest, so shall it be, knows verse 13. But if he will at all redeem it. So he says, you know what, I changed my mind. I, I, I want to keep that horse. I want to keep that animal. I want to keep that beast. Then he shall add the fifth part thereof unto thy estimation. So here's what God said. Okay, you want to change your mind on the, on the vow that you made, the promise that you made? Okay, well then you've got to pay the value of that animal plus the fifth part, which is 20%. So you figure out the value of it, and then you, you pay that amount to the priest. You keep your precious donkey or whatever, and then you also have to give 20% on top of that. Now look, does it sound like God is the spiritual Santa Claus that you, know, you and I try to make him out to be? Because we're like, God is so loving. I gave my life to him. I know that means nothing. I, I told him I was going to quit drinking and I'm still drinking. I told him I was going to quit smoking and I'm still smoking. I told him I was going to go to church and I'm still not going to church. Or I told him I was going to go sowing and I'm still not going to go sowing. Look, when God in the Old Testament, when His people made a vow, He expected them to keep it. And if they change their minds, and He's like, alright, but it's going to cost you a punitive 20%. You pay the full amount plus 20%. So we talked about the, pe the persons. We talked about the beast. Now let's look at the property. Look at verse 14. Leviticus 27 verse 14. And when a man shall sanctify his house to be holy unto the Lord, then the priest shall estimate it, whether it be good or bad. As the priest shall estimate it, so shall it stand. And if he that sanctified it will redeem his house. So this is someone who's buying a house and says, I'm buying this house for the work of God. Now I couldn't really think of an example of this that applies in our life except one. 
But you know, people could do this. I mean, you could, you could say, I'm going to buy this house for God. And look, if you gave us a house, we would use it. <laughs> well, you know, it'd be a cool place for people to hang, you know, all our commuters that travel from long ways, they could probably hang out there between the services. We could put guest speakers there or whatever. But I thought about this, you know, when we started Verity Baptist Church, my wife and I went out to buy a house to start a church in it. And I remember even telling God, because remember this is, remember I was saying a nice sermon, I was telling you we were trying to get out of debt and stuff. I, I don't think when we started the church we were completely out of debt. I can't remember now. I, I, actually, I think we were, but we were still broke. We were out of debt, but we were still broke. And I just remember telling God, like, God, I can't afford a house in California. And if you want me to start a church in California, I'm going to have to buy, I'm going to have to have a house. So Lord, would you please help me to buy a house in California if it's your will for us to start Verity Baptist Church? No joke, a year later, or not a year later, like months later, the housing market crashed. I'm not saying it was because of me, but I got a feeling it was. Because I would have never been able to afford a house in California, you know, if it wasn't for that. But now the houses were like, you know, half of what they were. And now all of a sudden we could afford a house. You know, and, and we bought a house. We bought it big so we could have the church in it. But see, if I would have done that and then at the last minute said, eh, forget it, I'm not starting a church. That's kind of what God's saying here. Now look, we, we paid our, our vow, right? We were in that house for a year and a half. And we had church Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, and soul winning. So, so we, we made our vow to God and God blessed us. But notice verse 14. And when a man shall sacrifice his house to be holy unto the Lord, then the priest shall estimate it, whether it be good or bad. As the priest shall estimate it, so shall it stand. And if he, shall, uh, and if he that sanctified it will redeem his house. They said, no, I don't want to give it to church. I don't want to give it to God. I don't want to give it to the work of God. Then he shall add the fifth part of the money of the estimation unto it, and it shall be his. So then you have to buy it back from God. Pay 100% plus 20%. Notice about, because uh, we're talking about property, he talks about this for a field also. Notice verse 16. Now, he talks about two different types of property, for, or three, I should say. First is the house. Then he talks about a field, but two different types of field. The field of an inheritance, which was their possession. And then he also talks about a, a field that is not inheritance. Because if you remember from the study on the, on the year of Jubilee, in the, in the times of, of the children of Israel, the Old Testament here, nobody actually owned land. The land belonged to God. And at the year of Jubilee, it would go back to the original tribes that owned it. So he's telling them about how they can offer land up to God, uh, you know, to, uh, you know, in those, in those situations. And, and even today, many people will offer land to God and say, hey, I own this land, I want to give it to the church. I've heard of churches building, you know, church buildings on land that was gifted to them or having like camps or, or uh, different conferences on lands that uh, was gifted to them. So that's what he's talking about. Look at verse 16. And if a man shall sanctify unto the Lord some part of a field of his possession, so this is his inheritance, then my estimation shall be according to the seed thereof, so it has to do with how big the land is, how much seed they can get planted, how much production they can get out of it. And homer of barley seed shall be valued at 50 shekels of silver. And if he sanctify his field, notice what it says, from the year of Jubilee. Now what that means is, if you consecrate it to God on the year of Jubilee, meaning we just reset, there's 49 years, you know, to the next Jubilee. According to thy estimation, it shall stand. So, if you've got, you're on the year of Jubilee, 
you got 49 years that you're going to have the land based on that amount of time and how big the land is, how much seed you can get into it, uh, how much it produces, that's how you value it. Notice uh, verse 17. I'm sorry, verse 18. But if he sanctify his field after the jubilee, so the jubilee's already passed, then the priest shall reckon, the word reckon means calculate, unto him the money according to the years that remain even unto the year of the jubilee. Because what happens at the year of jubilee? The land goes back to the original owner. So, you know, if you're doing it halfway through the jubilee, then you figure out how many years are left to the next jubilee. It's 25 years, it's 35 years, whatever it might be. And it shall be abated. The word abated means reduced or lessened from thy estimation. And if he shall, and if he that sanctified the field will in any wise redeem it. So the guy changes his mind. So I, I told the priest they could have this land and I was going to give it to them. But now I'm changing my mind. And it might not even be a bad change. Maybe, you know, things didn't work out and now he needs the land. He has to work it uh, because business didn't go well on other parts or whatever. If for whatever reason, if for uh, feel uh, with any wise redeem it, notice the rule, then he shall add the fifth part of the money of thy estimation unto it and it shall be assured to him. So again, you, you have somebody committing that they're going to give a field to God. They change their mind. Now they've got to give that amount plus the fifth uh, part, plus 20%. And again, the idea is you don't get to give something to God and then take it back. If you commit something to God, you have to give it to Him, you, or, or you have to give Him 100% plus 20%. Look at verse 20. And if He will not redeem the field. So now, now we're talking about a, a field uh, that, that He's not even going to redeem, meaning He's not going to buy it back and give back the 20%. Or if he have sold the field and, uh, uh, to another man. It'd be like if somebody came to Verity Baptist Church and said, Hey, I've got these acres, you know, right on the corner of whatever, you know, Northgate and North Market. Right on that corner, that, that uh, uh, you know, business went out of business. The wrath of God came upon that business. And now I own it and I'm giving it back to Verity Baptist Church. Wouldn't that be sweet? Uh, and, uh, you know, and, and, and then we were like, oh, praise the Lord. We're going to go back there. And then we find out, no, oh, no, he actually sold it to somebody else. He's talking about somebody, you know, lying and stealing. And they're, they're making these vows, but then they're deciding to go back on it. Notice what he says, verse 20. And if you will not redeem the field, or if you have sold the field to another man... It shall not be redeemed anymore. Notice, these are, this is specific instructions what the priests were allowed to do. But the field, when it goes out in the Jubilee, so they were supposed to basically just allow themselves to be defrauded. They weren't supposed to do anything about it. But during the year of Jubilee, um, it says, when it goes out in the Jubilee, shall be holy unto the Lord as a field devoted, the possession thereof shall be the priest. So if somebody did that, where they promised the priest's land and then they under their nose, you know, sold it to someone else. Then the priests were allowed at the year of Jubilee to take that land from them. It was no longer their family's possession and it was God's forever. So he's putting some strict punishment on being an Indian giver. You know, on, on saying I'm going to give something to God and then taking it back. And you can say like, well, I don't know that that would ever happen. Okay, go, go to the book of Acts. Let me show you... Um, a possibility that would seem more like the society you and I live in. Acts chapter number 5. You got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. Acts chapter number 5. And look at verse number 1. Here we have a story of someone making a vow. And notice it's based on emotion as well. Acts chapter number 5. Look at verse 1. But a certain man named Ananias... 
with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, right? They sold land and kept back part of the price. His wife also being privy to it, meaning she knew that this was going on, and brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. So they sold land, and then they took that amount, and they, they didn't take the full amount, they brought a certain part, so a part of it, and laid it at the apostles' feet. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Nothing's wrong with that. None in the world wrong with that. Until verse 3. But Peter said, Ananias, lie Satan filled thine heart to lie to the Holy Ghost and keep back part of the price of the land. Notice verse 4. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto man, but unto God. You say, what's going on here? Here's what's going on. Ananias and Sapphira said, we're going to sell this property we have, and we're going to give it all to God. And then they put a sale, a for sale sign on it. And then they sell it. And then they get the money. And they're sitting there in their house looking at the money. And they're thinking, this is a lot of money. Maybe we overcommitted here a little bit. Maybe, uh, let's, let's take only part of it. But, but, but here's the problem. And, and the wife would say, well, but we told them we we're going to give it all. And they say, let's just lie. Let's just say this is, this is all we got for it. And keep back part of it. Now here's what's interesting. Look at chapter 4 and verse number uh, 34. Last, last part of chapter 4. The, ch the church of Jerusalem is going through a lot of trials and tribulations at this time. The Bible says, Neither was there any among them that lacked. For as many as were possessors of lands or houses sold them and brought the prices of the things that were sold. They're going through a lot of trials and tribulations and they're seeing some... Christian generosity, where people are selling property and giving it so that they can help their fellow, you know, brother in need. Look, look, look verse 35. And laid them down at the apostles' feet, and distribution was made unto every man according as he hath need. And Joseph, who by the apostles was surnamed Barnabas, which is being by interpretation the son of consolation, a Levite, and of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it, and brought the money, and laid it at the apostles' feet. So, here's what's going on. All these people are genuinely, Joseph, you know, Barnabas, genuinely selling property, laying it at the apostles' feet, saying, I'm bringing this to the Lord. And you know what happened to Ananias and Sapphira? They got emotional. And a little spiritual. They said, oh, we'll we, we sell our property too. But you know what? They had no intention of actually going through with it. And they gave only part of it and lied. And Peter's telling them, Peter is saying, look, once it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? He's saying, nobody forced you. It was your property. You didn't have to sell it. You didn't have to get it. That's what I always try to tell people. People act like, oh, you guys are in a cult. The, the, the pastor of the church is this cult leader and just controls people. You know what? If Verity Baptist Church is a cult and I'm a cult leader, then this is the most failure of a cult church you know, that's ever existed. I mean, Jim Jones would be ashamed to just put us in the same classification. Because, you know, everyone else accused me about being a cult, but yet I can't control, it seems like I can't control anybody. You know, people can just meet together in groups, talk crap about me, talk crap about my wife, talk crap about the church all day long, 
And I can't stop them. I can't control them. But I'm the cult leader. No, I'm not a cult leader. That's why I can't control them. That's why they do what they want. That's why they just, you know, stab me in the back, lie about me, you know, you know, uh, take advantage of our church. Why? Because we're not a cult. Because look, we don't force you to do anything. Amen. The 70, 80 soul winners that show up, no one puts a, a gun to your head and says, you're showing up for soul winning. Drink this Kool-Aid. Nobody says that. You show up if you want. And if you don't want, you don't show up. And you give if you want. And if you don't want, you don't have to. I mean, do you understand what I'm saying? If you want to say, ah, oh, you're in a cult because you kick people out. No, cults keep people in, all right? Cults don't let people go. We're trying to get rid of people. We're like, you're a cancer. You're annoying. Get out of here, you know? And, you know, so we, I, I failed at the whole cult leading. I'm just going to have to go back to regular pastoring because I'm not very good at cult leading. But that's what Paul, Peter's telling him. Peter's telling him, like, hey, look, it was yours. Look at verse 4 again. Whilst it remained, was it not thine own? And after it was sold, was it not in thine own power? Why hast thou conceived this thing in thine heart? Thou hast not lied unto man, but unto God. And people say, like, well, if I vow something to God and then I go back on it, you know, is it that big of a deal? Well, did God think it was a big deal? Look at verse 5. And Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and gave up the ghost. And great fear came on all them that heard these things. God killed him. And the young men arose, wound him up, and carried him out, and buried him. And it was about the space of three hours after, when his wife, not knowing what was done, came in. And Peter answered unto her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. So he's asking her, How much did you sell the land for? Was it for this amount? And she said, Yea, for so much. Then Peter said unto her, How is it that ye have agreed together to tempt the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of them which have buried thy husband are at the door and shall carry thee out. Then fell she down straightway at his feet and yielded up the ghost. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her forth, buried her by her husband. And great fear came upon all the church and upon as many as heard these things. So, there you go. You know, is, does God think it's a big deal to lie and to say, I'm going to give a certain amount and then not? He thinks it's a big deal. That's what Leviticus 27 is all about. Go back to Leviticus 27. we got to finish this thing up. It's been nice while it lasted with Leviticus, but we got to move on. Look at verse 22. Now we're going to talk about the field uh, that's not an inheritance. And if a man sanctify unto the Lord a field which he hath bought, that's not an inheritance, which is not of the field of his possession, so it not, does not belong to his family, to his tribe, then the priest shall reckon, meaning calculate unto him the worth of thy estimation, even unto the year of Jubilee, and he shall give thine estimation in, the, in that day as a holy thing unto the Lord. In the year of the Jubilee, the field shall return unto him, whoever it was of whom it was bought, even to him to whom the possession, the inheritance, of the land did belong. And that's what we've cited about the year of Jubilee. It goes back to the original tribe that inherited because, and I'm not going to preach that sermon, but it was all to keep people, greedy people, from just monopolizing the entire land and enslaving everybody. And all thy estimation shall be according to the shekel sanctuary. Twenty giras shall be the shekel. Now look at verse 26. We talked about all the things that you can consecrate unto the Lord. The people, the animals, the land. Now he talks about things you cannot consecrate to the Lord. Verse 26. And the firstling of the beasts. Remember in the, in the story of Moses, when the death angel came and he was going to uh, kill the firstborn of people, of families, of animals. And then there was a precept set that every firstborn belonged to God. That's what he's talking about. He said, only the firstling of the beasts 
which should be the Lord's firstling, no man shall sanctify it, whether it be ox or sheep, it is the Lord's. Here's what he's saying. You can't give, that, you can't give to God what God already owns. God owned the firstling, so you can't have, you know, the firstling say, I'm going to give this to God as an offering. God says, I already own that. That already belongs to me. You cannot give to God what already belongs uh, to Him. Let's, let's, let's skip a few verses just for sake of time. Look at verse 30, and let's, let's see an application that applies for us today. Verse 30. And all the tithe... Okay, so he ends the book of Leviticus talking about tithe and tithing. And all the tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or of the fruit of the tree, is the Lord's. It is holy unto the Lord. Okay, so notice what he's saying here. He, he's carrying this idea, you cannot give back to God what God already owns. He says, look, God owns the tithe. The first 10%, go to Matthew, Matthew chapter number 23. The first 10% belongs to God of your income. So you can't give that to God. You can't give to God what God already owns. It'd be like if you rented a house from someone and you walk up to them on the first and say, I just want to, out of the out of kindness of my heart, I know you're struggling, I just want to give you this $3,000. It's like, no, you owe me that money. I'm your landlord. You can't give to me what you owe me. All right? God is saying, you can't give to God what you already owe Him. Now notice what Jesus says about the tithe. Matthew 23, verse 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Notice what he says. For ye give tithe. Is that what he said? No. He says, for ye pay tithe. So why did he say you pay the tithe? Because that's exactly what you do. You pay it. You owe it to God. So you're not giving anything to God when you give Him your tithe. You're just paying your bill. You owe Him the tithe. That's why it's, it's, it's always funny to me you know, once a year we do a special vision offering in the spring around here. And, and we'll tell people like, hey, you know, we want to do above and beyond. We want to do something special. Not, you know, we've got our regular bills that we have to pay around here. But above our regular budget, we'd like you to give, you know, to your power and above your power. And we preach those sermons and we talk about that. And then every year, here's what people do. They just take their tithe and give it to the vision offering. And it's like, that doesn't help. Okay, number one, you didn't do anything because you didn't give God anything. You owed Him that. But number two, it doesn't help us if you take the money that you were going to give anyway and give that, you know, you're just, you know, you're, che- you're checking off a different part of the envelope. It doesn't make any sense, okay? You pay your tithe. You don't give something back to God that He already owns. And let me say this. Today people want to say, oh, we don't have to tithe. New Testament believers don't have to tithe. The tithe has been repealed. In the New Testament, the tithe no longer has to be paid. Well, someone should have, you know, your little Bible study or your little commentary or your little radio show or TV preacher or internet preacher that is teaching that we don't have to tithe in the New Testament, they, I guess Jesus missed that commentary. Jesus missed that radio program. Because Jesus, I, I don't know, is, isn't Matthew the New Testament? Jesus in the New Testament is saying, hey, well unto you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you pay tithe. He's he's saying like, you pay tithe. And you say, yeah, but that's negative. Read to what he's saying. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, 
Those are spices. He says, you are so right with God, quote unquote, but you even take, if someone gives you, if someone gives you, you know, mint or anise or cumin, they give you a spice, you sit there and figure out the worth of it and you pay tithe and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Now, hold on. People say, see, he's saying, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees. That's negative. Is it negative that they're paying the tithe? Or is it negative that they're paying the tithe while omitting the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith? And do you have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that he's not saying it's wrong that you pay tithe? In fact, notice what he says. These are ye to have done. Right. He's not down on them tithing mint and anise and coming. In fact, I think that's what we're supposed to do. If someone gives you a gift, you should figure out that is valued at this amount and I should tithe because that came from God and I want to acknowledge God and all my ways acknowledge Him and He shall direct thy path. He's not mad that they're tithing. He's mad that they're so good at tithing and yet omitting the weightier matters of the law. And then he says, these had you to have done. He says, I'm glad you're doing that and not to leave the other undone. What are they leaving undone? The weightier matters of the law. Now, hold on a second. Look at this. Look at what it says. Well, unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin and have omitted the weightier matters of... What does that say? What are those two words? Of the law. Can we say that together? Of the law. I just want to make sure I'm not seeing that. Is that in your King James Bible? Of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law according to, the, according to Jesus? Because he's saying there are some parts of the law that are more important than others. More weightier. Now tithing is part of the law, but it's not as important as the things he's about to tell us are the weightier matters of the law. What are the weightier matters of the law? Notice what he says. Judgment, mercy, and faith. Here's how stupid these people are. They say, we're not under the law. Well, here's the problem with that. The weightier matters of the law are judgment, mercy, and faith. Amen. In the New Testament, we're no longer under the law. So you're not, no longer under faith because that's what you need to get saved. Amen. You're no longer under mercy. You're no longer under judgment. No, no, no. We're just talking about the, the law. Look, he says the most important part of the law, the, the weightier matters of the law are judgment, mercy, and faith. No, we're not under the law. Then you're not under faith and you're not saved and you're going to die and go to hell. Look, you can't decide. You're just going to get rid of the entire... The, the Old Testament is a pretty big part of the Word of God. Yeah. You can't just cut all of it out and say, it no longer applies. If it no longer applies, then you can't get saved. Because Jesus said the most important part of the law, the weightier matter of the law, is judgment, mercy, and faith. That's what He said. But today people, they, they want to read their stupid little commentaries that are not inspired by God, that are not written by the Holy Ghost, and then they want to ignore the Word of God that the Holy Spirit actually spoke. That Jesus, the words that Jesus Himself... And look, we have an example here where Jesus, He's not telling someone not to tithe. He's saying, I'm glad you tithe. I just wish you would also do the weightier parts of the law. Judgment, mercy, and faith. And look, if you can't understand that, then I don't know what your problem is. You're not saved. I mean, how hard is it for, the, for you to look at that and for that to just to make sense if you've got the Holy Spirit living inside of you? Go back to Leviticus 27, look at verse 30. The Bible says the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. 
And you know, I'm just, I'm sick and tired of where you, you just tell people, here's what the Bible says, just over and over and over, verse after verse after verse, you explain to people, here's where it says it, here's where it says it, here's where it says it, and they're like, well, I read this book. <laughs> but the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God. If, if you can't look at, you know, if you can't look at Evan's videos and figure out that the guy is mentally handicapped, okay, then there's something wrong with you. Then you're mentally handicapped. I mean, if you can't walk, if you can't talk to these guys about the government, it's like you can tear their arguments apart from limb to limb. But see, the problem is they haven't read the Bible, and all their feeble-minded followers haven't read the Bible. That's the problem. And look, if you can't figure it out. Then just get out. Then we don't need you here. Then just go. Because I'm sick and tired of people. Well, you know, my little commentary, my little group, or my little circle, you're an idiot. Look, show me what the Bible says. Show me what the Word of God says. That's all I care about. That's all I've ever cared about. He says, notice verse 31. And if a man will at all redeem out of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. So let me just give you the last application here. If you say, man, I got a tithe tonight, you know, this week, but I need that, I want, I want to do this other thing, and you want to keep that, God says, okay, you can do that, but here's the thing, you have to pay it back 100% plus 20%. And what he says, verse 31. And if a man will at all redeem out of his tithes, he shall add thereto the fifth part thereof. So if you say, I don't want to tithe, I want to keep the tithe, then God says, okay, you can borrow it. Look, and, and you say, well, what, what do you think about that, Pastor? Well, I, I think that's scripture. That's what God says. So if you don't, you know, you say, I can't pay my tithe this, this month, then pay it next month and add 20% to it. You know, you, you didn't tithe, tithe 100 bucks, then next time you pay 200 plus 20% of what you borrow. But you know, I would just encourage you to not treat God like some sort of payday loan, you know, shop. And just pay God and trust Him. And just have faith in God and have faith in the Lord that He will take care of you. Verse 32, And concerning the tithe of the herd or of the flock, even of whatsoever passes under the rod, the tenth shall be holy unto the Lord. And the idea here is that you don't get to choose what you give to God when it comes to 10%. It's just the first 10%. They would put a rod out and the first 10 of the 100 animals that went uh, uh, under it belong to God. Verse 33, He shall not search whether it be good or bad, neither shall he change it. And if he change it at all, then both it and the change thereof shall be holy. It shall not be redeemed. These are the commandments which the Lord commanded Moses for the children of Israel in Mount Sinai. And here's what he's saying. He's saying if you want to borrow the tithe, then he's, God says, you can do that, but you've got to pay it back completely, 100%, and then give 20% on top of that. You know, just as we finish this book of, of the Bible, let me just say this. Leviticus is a book that people often mock at. You know, as Christians, uh, uh, to mock at Christians, they'll say, "Oh, you believe the Book of Leviticus?" We spent the last twenty-seven weeks in Leviticus, and you know what I found is that it's extremely applicable to us today. Amen. And that God expect, and there are parts of it that don't apply. But you know what? You say, "Well, what's, how do you know the parts that don't apply?" Here's how you know it: when you get to the New Testament, and God says, "Hey, this part doesn't apply anymore." Amen. All right. If He didn't say that, then you don't get to make that up. Amen. You don't get to just make up like, "I don't like this part, and I don't like this part, and I don't like that part." You know, if he says the Sabbath no longer applies, then guess what? The Sabbath no longer applies. If he says that we don't have to make animal sacrifices, then guess what? Then we don't have to make animal sacrifices. If he says pay your tithe, then guess what? Pay your tithe. 
Because that's what he said. You know, the Bible says this, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's proper for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So don't ignore books like this. You know, make sure when you're reading through the Bible, you're not, I'm going to ignore Leviticus, Numbers, make it to Joshua, that's exciting. I'm going to ignore, you know, Deuteronomy. No, God gave us these books for a reason. He wants us to study them. He wants us to learn them. He wants us to, uh, to apply them. Let's bow our heads and have a prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for these books in Scripture. And Lord, I pray that you would please help us, guide us. And Lord, I just pray that your Holy Spirit would just, you know, remove people from this church that don't need to be here. If people are just going to be backstabbers and liars, then just get them out of here. And Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide them. I pray that you'd help me to make them uncomfortable. And Lord, help us to just have a church full of people that actually love you, that are loyal to your word, and that aren't just being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. And Lord, I pray you strengthen our church and guide us. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.